This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. And I'm Jared Murphy from City Limits, and we're pleased to be joined today. I'm Max and Murphy with David Eisenbach, candidate for Democrat, running for public advocate. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, guys. Uh, as you're out campaigning, you are running for an office that is fairly unique to New York, if not totally unique to New York. And so one of the questions you must get is, what does the public advocate do? How do you answer that basic question? And the second one, why are you running for it? Right, right. Uh, what I say, say to them is that uh, the public advocate, it's unique office that is designed to call out waste, fraud, and corruption in the city government. And the reason why I'm running is because I don't believe Tish James is doing enough to do that job. Uh, I think she's too easy on the mayor. Uh, when we have, you know, eight different pay-to-play uh, investigations by the U.S. Attorney and the Manhattan uh, DA, uh, where has she been in terms of calling out the pay-to-play corruption that has characterized this administration? Now, that's not the kind of public advocate I want, and that won't be the kind of public advocate I'll be. I'll be out there every single day uh, calling out these and many other issues, which we'll have an opportunity to discuss. Now, you've sort of been campaigning a bit with Sal Albanese, who's challenging Mayor de Blasio. Mm -hmm. um, so, let's just say in the in the chance that there's, you know, these upset victories and yeah. Sal Albanese is the mayor and you're the public advocate, that would still be true. I mean, that's sort of part of the thing here, right, is that the public advocate, since its creation, it's often been this tension between a Democratic public advocate and a Republican or an independent mayor. So now you've been campaigning with, with Mr. Albanese a bit. Would you that's right. bring that approach to him or you're just sort of projecting it to be de Blasio again? Sal and I have been out on the campaign trail together. We've kind of ticketed up uh, as the reform candidates and we agree on almost every issue. And I said to him once, you know, look, you backtrack on any single promise that I've heard on this campaign trail and I'm going to be the first one to call you out on it. You know what he said to me? He said, David, I wouldn't want it any other way. And that's the kind of guy that Sal Albanese is, and that's why he's going to be a great mayor. So let's step back now. Yeah. Uh, who are you? <laughs> what do you do? You know, we got yeah, right yeah. into the fire there. But, yeah. no, um, you know, tell folks who you are and, and, you know, where you come from, what you would bring to this, yeah. to this position. Well, I teach history at Columbia, uh, and I'm not a politician. This is my first race. And what I'm going to bring is an independence, which I think is essential to a true public advocate. One who isn't afraid to step on the toes, whether it's the mayor's toes, whether it's big real estate, regardless, right, uh, is willing to take on the tough fights. Uh, and that means, you know, making some enemies, very powerful enemies, including members of your own party. I think part of the problem uh, with this public advocate is that she's part of the establishment. Uh, and this is a this is a club, and this is a tight club, uh, and uh, I don't want to be part of that club. <laughs> they don't want me part of it, and I don't want to be part of it, and I'm going to be independent, and that's that's what I'm going to bring to the office. So, if elected, you would be, I think, the city's fifth public advocate. It's a relatively new post. That's right. Of the previous four, of which Letitia James is one. Um, is there a model there that you would follow in terms of approach to the office, and and why? Absolutely, Mark Green. You know. Love him or hate him, you knew who Mark Green was. You knew there was this thing called a public advocate who every single day seemed to have something going on, some, some stunt, some press conference, some issue, uh, and was constantly doing the job of the public advocate, which is to call out waste, fraud, and corruption in New York City and to fight for the public. Uh, and that's something that I think is missing with this public advocate. Do you think that Green, I've heard that argument before, I'm sure Ben has too, that Green was so much more visible I wonder if part of that is that he had a, a foil in Giuliani that was a lot easier to kind of butt up against day after day. 
and that the local press was also equipped differently then. You had many more reporters on the Metro beat, it seemed, in the late 90s than you do now. I mean, do you think the comparison is valid from that period to this one? Well, I think that the office is personality-driven. Right, uh, uh, Tish James is a lawyer, and she files a great number of, of lawsuits. Right, so it, it really is shaped by. There's who, a lot of ways to yeah. Shape there are a lot of ways. I mean, it's you, feel. you can take mm -hmm. it in any direction you want. Right. Uh, I would be more of the model of Mark Green, using it as a bully pulpit, uh, and in this case, Democrat Republican, regardless, uh, using it to call out those in charge, those with the power uh, in the name of the public. Um, so that's that's how I see it, and and you know I would be much more kind of visible uh, by using my skills as a communicator, as a presenter, as a teacher, to use use that position to educate the public about various issues. I think that's part of the problem, and it's not just Tish James. I think our politicians in general do not educate the public enough about what's going on. So James, and she'll join us on another episode, so she'll be able to make her case, but. Um you know, she would say, you're right, I have filed a lot of litigation. I've had, she might, may or may not admit to the mixed results. You know, she's been kicked off some lawsuits, etc. But she's had a few victories. And she's also um, passed more legislation than any public advocate before she often talks about, right? So I think, I don't know that any of her supporters or she would sort of deny that she hasn't been out there railing against the mayor at press conferences, a la Mark Green or what you're promising. But she would point to sort of some substantive things that she's done. How do you respond to that? You know, she said it's not about yelling at a press conference. It's about passing legislation, suing the city around, you know, air conditioning and bus, you know, school buses. Well, let's take one of my main issues. Uh, we have uh, an administration that has been plagued by pay-to-play corruption scandals. Uh, and although the U.S. attorney did not prosecute, uh, did not indict, um, the U.S. Attorney said that there was a failure on the part of de Blasio uh, to, um, to check himself uh, and to uh, resist the temptation, even if the law does not specifically prohibit these certain activities, uh, and thanks to the McConnell decision in the Supreme Court, right, uh, they basically legalized pay-to-play corruption. That doesn't mean the mayor is innocent. He's not innocent. And that's where the public advocate would come in. If the prosecutors can't prosecute and the lawmakers refuse to pass legislation that would actually prohibit these play-to-play -play, uh, corruption schemes, the public advocate should be the one railing against the mayor, calling him out, making sure that he doesn't do this consistently. Uh, and that's where, one of her failures. The office is a fairly small one, and I know that's something that past public advocates have talked about as being a barrier to them being more visible, taking on every fight that comes to their plate. And it also has tools under the charter, um, but it doesn't have probably every tool that a public advocate would want. How do you take those resources and do what you're proposing to do? I don't think that the budget alone will accomplish the kind of uh, role you vision for it. Well, this is where the use of the bully pulpit, right, doesn't take any money, right? It is by virtue of the fact that you are a citywide elected official, you are next in line to the mayor, right? It, it, if you use it properly, you will be known by every New Yorker. Right? And you can use it to call out not just the mayor, you can call out the governor, you, you call out the president. Right? Uh, and you can use the powers of communication and education. And that's the skills and talents that I'll bring to the office, which is different than the skill set of Tish James. 
One feature of the charter that's interesting about the, the number two position, the public advocate, is it is this public ombudsman and has power to investigate. It's required to do that. It also is the number two position, and so in the event of a vacancy in Admiralty, that person would take over. That's obviously very unlikely, but it's in the charter for a reason. Have you given some thought to, if you were elected, that kind of responsibility falling to you, and would you be qualified to take that on if it came? Yes, uh, but I would not run in the next race, right? So there is, uh, it was a 90 days, right? Um, so I would, it would have a care, I would be a caretaker mayor. I would bring on advisors who would help me manage the city. Um, but I'm not running for mayor. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to do the job of public advocate. I would be a caretaker. Next mayor would come in, and then I would resume the duties of the public advocate. Did you, um, how, how, you've been in the city for, for a while. Um, yes. Did you vote in 2013? Yes. Um, did you vote in the primaries? Who, who'd you vote for for public advocate? Who'd you vote for for mayor? <laughs> I voted for both de Blasio and Tish James. Mm -hmm. uh, and I b believed in them. I believed in this notion of the tale of two cities. And what I saw over the last four, four years, is the tale of two cities has gotten worse. The city is less affordable than under Bloomberg. And that, to me, is a real problem. This is, these are Democrats doing this, uh, squeezing the middle class. Poor are getting poorer. The rich are getting richer. Uh, and we'll talk more about so, this. So, yeah, so, so what would yeah. be done? And I mean, that's sort of my next question is, um, you know, I see on your website, uh, as public advocate, I would call for an immediate pause to both the upzoning of our neighborhoods and the deregulation of subsidized housing. Yes. Okay, so you call for those. You know, what are, what are some of the things that you want to see done? I mean, it... No question the public advocate could potentially have this bully pulpit role calling things out, but naturally you'd want to propose some things. So I got you started there, but what do you what do you want to see happen? Right. Uh, in terms of the, we'll just stick with the luxury. Yeah, you, know. you said the city's yes. even less affordable under these, you know, this democratic regime. What do you, what do you think needs That's to happen? Right. Yeah. That's right. Um, one of the things that, of course, the mayor is... Uh, uh, most proudest of uh, is the affordability and that he's providing all these affordable units that he's cut these deals with the developers to build the luxury towers uh, with the affordable. Um, and as a result of this, we have a lot of uh, what I consider giveaways of green spaces, of hospitals, of libraries. And my problem with that is I don't think the bargains that he struck are good enough. Uh, we don't have to give away uh, these public uh, uh, possessions in order to get just 20% uh, affordable here and there. Secondly, I question this meaning of affordability. Um, I think that in many neighborhoods, the affordable units are not affordable to people who live in the neighborhoods. Third, we have the issue of displacement. Every time you have one of these luxury tower projects that gets approved in the neighborhood, all the surrounding landlords start to see dollar signs. They start to jack up the rents on working New Yorkers who have been living there for decades. So we have a displacement issue. Uh, this contributes to the rise, the glaring rise of homelessness, uh, which I believe Tish James has not been strong enough in calling out the mayor for. So what I would say is, Every step of the way, right, any one of these projects that gets uh, approved, if I think it's a bad project, I will call them out. So, so pause the upzonings and figure out sort of a new model for negotiating these, these deals. That's right. I would say, you know, again, they can make their own arguments, but, you know, one of the arguments is that, that on, the, on a lot of the city-owned land, 
you know, they're getting a better deal. There's some 100% affordable housing projects that go up. You know, a lot of the sort of 75-25 splits are when they're allowing a developer to, you know, build higher on a, on a certain plot of land that's a privately owned um, piece. But you feel like the, the deals are not being struck well enough on any of this. Right. I mean, we'd have to go deal by deal. But uh-huh. yes, in a general sense, uh, I think that we are getting the short end of the stick here. And I think the reason for that, uh, you know, ties right into this issue of pay-to-play corruption. Uh, when you have a mayor who is accepting so much of his war chest uh, from big real estate, there's no way he can regulate his campaign contributors. Uh, we saw that in the debate, right? His claim that you know he is completely independent, even though he's getting the checks from big real estate, it's it's laughable on the face. Why do you think, Bill? These uh, big real estate titans are giving you money because they like your view of capitalism, which you critiqued left and right during the debate. No, they're doing it so that they can control and manage you, manage you. And that's what they've done over the past four years. So you are a historian. Yes. And you are, you are a progressive. And so I think it'd be interesting to talk about another topic that came up in the debate, which is this debate about statues in the city, especially yes. Christopher Columbus, but it will, you know, certainly deal with other historical figures, too. Um, As someone with that background and those leanings, I know you want to talk about your specific plan for Columbus Circle, but talk about that in the context of what are you hoping this conversation looks like in New York, and what are you hoping, if anything, it it avoids? Um, As New York now is following other cities at looking at these memorials we have and trying to figure out how much they are in or out of step with our values. Right. we teachers have, have a word for this. It's called a teachable moment uh, in which we can take something that's going on uh, in the world and use it to educate our students about history, let's say. Uh, I think that this is an opportunity for us New Yorkers now to have a citywide history lesson in which we go statue by statue and discuss the good, bad, and the ugly whether it's Columbus or it's uh, Stuyvesant or whether it's uh, William Tecumseh Sherman. Right? These are discussions that are valuable, and if we decide to get rid of the statues or keep the statues, we will have learned something very, very important. In, on your website, you describe yourself as the only liberal in the race, uh, which is interesting because liberal is a term that's fallen out of favor. It's now you're supposed to be call yourself a progressive. Um, is there a reason for your choice of that word, and what does that mean to you? I think it's evocative of an, an older approach, one that is more focused less on identity politics, more, more on economics, uh, that, that understands that just saying the right words right, is not enough. You actually have to have the right policies. That's what liberal means to me. And, speak, and speaking of policies, uh, another major plank um, that you're running on is the Small Business Jobs Survival Act. This is something that's been around a long time. Um, talk a little bit about that and right. sort of your assessment of, of what's happened there. So the Small Business Jobs Survival Act, like you said, it's been around uh, for decades. It's been tweaked over the years. And what it will do is it will set up a level playing field between landlord and tenant that if they can't come to a resolution on a lease renewal, uh, they will then go through an arbitration process. And what this, this arbitration process will settle on is a fair market rate. Uh, what you have now uh, are landlords that are jacking up the rent 400, 500% in many cases, that knowing full well the tenant cannot afford it. And not only that, no tenant can afford it, which is why we have all these empty storefronts 
that are often sitting vacant for years. This is bad for the tax base. It's bad for the streetscape. Uh, it's it's really just bad public policy. And what have we gotten from uh, this administration? Silence on the small business issue. Uh, Tish James supported the Small Business Job Survival Act until she became public advocate, and then she abandoned it with this line that it has legal issues. Well, there was an article in last week's Villager that went through the legal history of the Small Business Job Survival Act and showed that not a single city attorney, corporation counsel, all right, not a single court has said this is illegal, this is unconstitutional. I want to know what is the basis of her legal opinion as a lawyer. She should be able to provide it, be more specific. And so... That seems to be one of the sort of motivating factors for this run. Um, t tell us a little bit, you know, again, to sort of go back to who you are. Have you thought about running for public office before? And what was the sort of moment where you said, hmm, uh, you know, I'm going to I'm gonna actually do I'm this. I'm going to do it, yeah. yes. Yeah, I, I've, I've thought about it for, for a while. Uh, the moment that made me realize it has to be done now is my realization that we're at a tipping point. That the disappearance of small business, for example, uh, the have and have not situation getting worse, the tale of two cities, is creating a situation where the middle class is disappearing. This mayor's budget of $86 billion, more or less, right, is built on a booming stock market and a booming real estate market. Well, these markets are going to come down, I think, very soon, definitely within the next four years. And when that happens... We are going to be left with a budget short, uh, shortfall right, that's going to lead to a fiscal crisis we haven't seen since the 1970s. Now, historically, every time there has been a drop in the stock market and real estate markets, we've had small business to provide a safety net. Well, that safety net has now been gutted. And now the New York City taxpayer is going to be left holding the bag. And what I want to do is alert people to this fact, this, this disaster that is looming at, uh, on us, and try to avoid it uh, if we can. And that's why I'm running for public advocate. Do you remember the moment where you sort of, were, were you talking it over with people, or how did you, how did you sort of make the decision? That was a Longer specific process. moment. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if there was a specific moment. I would definitely say that over a year, mm -hmm. uh, I've been kind of thinking about this uh, and, and seeing that, that there's one person that sort of I know that, that could deliver this message and explain it uh, to people. I hadn't seen that out there uh, on the horizon, and so I figured, well, I might as well be it. In fact, I have a responsibility to do it since I do see it coming. I need to run for this office. And before, oh, go ahead. Yeah, one of the things in your background is you've authored or co-authored three very interesting looking books, um, and I'm curious about a few of them, but one thing I wonder is there might be some female voters or other voters who might raise an eyebrow or something else at the fact that you co-authored a book with Larry Flint yes. um, because of their concerns about the way that he's made his money and, and made his name. What would you say to objections like that? I would say read the book. Uh, you will you will see, uh, in fact, uh, there were it's been called a feminist text, surprisingly, uh, because uh, it, it's a book. Let me just back, backtrack. It's a book about the, uh, the sex lives of the presidents and first ladies and how the, these romantic relationships uh, shaped the political world. 
And I talk about, uh, for example, Eleanor Roosevelt uh, and her lesbian affairs and her lovers who really transformed her uh, from a Victorian woman with her own prejudices, her sense of uh, being in the background, into the great feminist icon uh, we know and love. Well, though that would never, that transformation never would have happened without these lesbian relationships. So the point of the book was to show that the personal is political, truly. And that, you know, we need to understand these figures in history as complicated beings. Uh, and this was providing a new insight into the way we're looking at political history. That raises a good question, too, is that in this day and age we're talking about political figures, historical figures, and the fact that they're not one-dimensional. They have these complexities and it's forcing us to decide, are they a valuable symbol for our city? Having done that, uh, as a historian, and now as a political figure yourself, yes. uh, who among the presidents or, or leaders, given what you know about their complexities, do you hold out as a, as a true hero from the American past? Or are, are they all too uh, besmirched by some sin to be not worth, uh, not worth holding up on that one? Oh, no, no, no. I, I definitely think there are heroes. Uh, and there are heroes with lots of warts, but they're still heroes. And that was one of the arguments of the book. Uh, if you look at John Kennedy, for example, if you look at Franklin Delano Roosevelt, right? Um, men who, you know, they had affairs. But I would defy anyone not to say, wait a second, these guys aren't heroes. So s tying a few of these things together, there's a, there's a bit of discussion now, and there has been for a long time, of course, about um, gender balance in elected office. Uh, Tish James, the first woman of color to hold citywide office. You're looking to unseat her. There's 13 women right now in the city council in 51 seats. You know, there's sort of a, I don't think it's dramatic, you know, to call it a crisis of, of gender balance in elected office. Um, as someone who just proudly sort of said, you know, the, that your book was called, you know, a feminist text. Do you have any qualms about trying to unseat, you know, a, a, a trailblazer who, you know, one of the biggest pieces of legislation she passed was this salary history uh, request prohibition, which is seen as a gender equity bill. Do you have any qualms about that? I'm not running against Tish as a man against a woman. I'm running against Tish as uh, somebody who believes he could do a better job at the office uh, than she's doing. Um, so I'm just, I'm just running. Uh, you know, I, I don't see it as a battle of the sexes at all. Uh, Rikers Island is uh, obviously a big topic. You wait on that. You do not like the idea of uh, having uh, small jails in each borough. Uh, something that uh, some people in the city have signed on to, although the mayor actually has, has not signed on to that himself, not, not fully. What do you think the next step should be? What do you think the end game is on, on Rikers? Yes. One of my biggest problems uh, with this notion, let's just get rid of Rikers, uh, is they seem to be blaming the building, as if the building is guilty of the crimes committed in Rikers. It's people who committed these crimes. It's people, it's guards and supervisors who allowed systemic rape of female prisoners to go on for years. The punishment needs to be put and the burden needs to be put on the people and that will then require a genuine reform of what's going on within those walls. That's not to say we can't do a better job in terms of remodeling, revamping the facilities, but let's start with the culprits here. For far too often, we look the other way. Uh, we even, you know, you hear, well, this just happens in prisons. Well, these are human rights violations, and they're not happening in some Middle Eastern jail. They're happening in our own city, and that is just unacceptable. Your campaign, um, you know, you didn't qualify to, to have a formal debate with 
the public advocate with Tish James. Um, you know, you've raised a pretty modest amount of money. So what's what's happened there? Why has this been, you know, a struggle? Or is this exactly how you anticipate? I can't imagine you got into this race and said, you know, I won't qualify for debate. You <laughs> yeah. know, I, I imagine you thought it might be hard to raise some money, but... Oh, I had no idea how happening? hard. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. look, I teach history. I don't have a lot of rich uh, friends and family. Uh, it, it, they have given as much as they can, and it's not much. Um... That's no, there's no question about it. What's been reassuring to me is that despite that fact, I'm getting the majority of my contributions from people I've never met, uh, who one way or another are hearing the message and hearing the truth, uh, and are writing little checks and making little contributions on the, the campaign and website um, to say, okay, yeah, we need something different uh, in this town. Um, so yes, I, on the campaign, on the uh, the fundraising, it's it has been a challenge for sure. Mm -hmm. And the debates um, that, you know, the fact that Sal Albanese, you know, sort of squeaked into the qualifications to be on the mayoral stage was huge for him and his campaign. I mean, we'll see what it turns into in terms of fundraising, which he needs to pick back up once he spent basically all spent basically all he had, but huge media attention and such. So how much of a disappointment was that for you? And is there any way to sort of make up for that? I mean, we're, we're basically two weeks from the vote here. Right. Well, my hope is that you guys, the press, uh, will start paying attention to the race and give us both a shot at uh, showing our visions uh, for the next four years. And if we can just have a debate on the issues, I mean, this is supposed to be democracy. Uh, the, the idea that you would say, okay, well, you know, we're judging this, this uh, two candidates, whether they're going to debate or not based on how much they've raised in terms of money, we're both on the ballot. We're both Democrats. We're both qualified to be on that ballot. New Yorkers, New York Democrats, deserve to have a debate and discussion. And whether it's a formal debate between the two of us or whether it's a, a chance to actually air the issues and the differences between the two of us and the press, well, that is what we should be doing as a democracy. And now more than ever, with Trump president of the United States, we need to do democracy right in this town. And democracy is not something we just have. Democracy is something we have to do. So, uh, final question, I think that for me anyway, public advocate's always been a job that is most closely related to actually being a custodian for the democratic process, you know, and being someone who should be concerned about engagement, participation. This primary we're coming up toward could have record low turnout, um, and that could work to a number of people's advantage or disadvantage. It could work to your advantage. If you win on uh, September 12th, and but it was from a race where there was 10% turnout, 11% turnout, do you think that will make you a less legitimate public advocate? Do you, do you need a mandate in order to say to people that you have a charge from the city of New York to, to be their advocate? Well, what I would say is, I mean, look at the turnout with Bill de Blasio and how he got elected mayor on a very low turnout. Uh, look at Donald Trump, didn't even win the popular vote, uh, but he's president of the United States. Uh, elections do matter, elections do happen, the results are the results. Uh, and what I would say is I will be a, a public advocate for the people, for the majority, against the minority and the big money people, uh, and that's something this town has not seen in a very long time. Well, I think we'll leave it there with uh, David Eisenbach. We, we could go into a whole lot more, but I think that gives a good taste of why you're running, what you're about, and um, if you are victorious on September 12th, we'll certainly uh, look to talk to you more before the general election. We, uh, we appreciate talking with you today. Oh, Thanks I had fun. Coming. Thank you. Thank you.